Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. When most people imagine raising kids, they probably have a pretty standard trajectory in mind. The kids are watched over throughout infancy and toddler years. They progress through school. They somehow get through the awkward stage of puberty, finish high school, maybe go off to college, and then at some point are permanently out of the house, completely on their own. Life goes on, and you're lucky enough to get old, and maybe the kids help take care of you. But what if, instead, your child had a physical or mental condition that guaranteed that for their lifetime, and yours, you'd always be the caregiver? The struggles of these parents are not often discussed, and until recently there wasn't even a term to describe them. Carrie Cariello, a New Hampshire mom who's written extensively about her experience caring for a teenage son who has autism, coined the term forever parents. We'll be talking with Carrie about the inspiration for the term and her personal experience as a forever parent. Later in the show, you'll meet another forever parent, Adriana Piltz. When her son Nikki was a baby, his condition caused hundreds of seizures in a day. And now, as a 24-year-old, he has multiple health problems and violent tantrums. And you'll meet Marissa. She's 24 years old, and she has Down syndrome. She'll be joined by her parents, Kathy and Mars, to talk about the frustrations and the fulfillment of knowing she'll need their support for the rest of her life. But let's get back to Carrie. Her son Jack is 18 years old, and in addition to having autism, he also has severe anxiety and obsessive-compulsive disorder. I asked her to talk about when she first noticed there was something different about Jack. We definitely had some red flags really early on. Sleep was a very inconsistent pattern for him. He slept through the night immediately and then stopped altogether when he was around four months. Um, He seemed to have a lot of trouble managing food when we started cereal and more solid textures. He couldn't move it from the front of his mouth to the back of his mouth. He also was just constantly in a state of unease. I describe it as he just looked uncomfortable in his own skin. He was never really um, relaxed. He wouldn't relax against us. He was very, very prone to like crying jags and really, really difficult to soothe. That was like infancy through six months. And then at around the six month period, it became more, he had such a um, disconnect from us. He seemed really checked out a lot of times as if we, he didn't even realize he belonged to a family, if that makes sense. You know, we'd call his name. He wouldn't answer. We thought perhaps there was some hearing impairment. Um, He could disappear into odd kind of behaviors for as long as we would let him. You know, like I remember we had a tile floor where we lived at the time and he would just trace his finger around it. He would probably do that for hours. A really big red flag is I had another baby when Jack was 14 months and I was in the hospital having my third son. And when I came home, Jack just walked by me as if I was a lamp, as if I didn't even live there. So there's certain really vivid memories for me of how vacant he appeared. 
At what point did the term forever mother enter your mind? Uh, I would say cerebrally, I've known that for as long as he's been diagnosed. I think emotionally, it really occurred to me that I will be involved with him for as long as I live. What is he like now? (laughs) Well, he's six foot five. Uh, He wears a size 15 shoe. You know, he has some really great triumphs that I try to make sure his vulnerabilities don't overshadow. I'll give you an example. He started this college program last summer and we were really unsure how it would all play out. And he's stretched his wings in a really extraordinary way since then. Um, He traveled to Costa Rica with the program. He manages his own medication. He's taking two college classes and successful in them. And yet at the same time, at this very moment, he's overcome with a severe bout of anxiety regarding the shifting social landscape of a residential space. And what severe anxiety looks like to Jack is intrusive thinking, looping um, verbal processing, a lot of muttering and a lot of, again, unease in his body. We learn in yoga that our bodies tell us everything we need to know. And for Jack, that is absolutely the case. You have written uh, before, and you're a wonderful writer. Um, You said, I don't want to do this forever. I mean, where is the finish line? What's the end game? But I can't say that out loud. It's too selfish and small. I'd love to hear you unpack that. So much of my life is managing him. You know, just last week, we had a difficult meeting with his team. And the minute that ended, I had to sort of spring into action. It's phone calls to connect them with therapists. It's phone calls to the pediatrician about medication and seeing if we should change some of that. It's phone calls to different programs to see if they're more supported. I want to move beyond management and into what I call discovery and really discover who he is and what our relationship can be long term. But I think as long as you're sort of Withheld in one space, it's difficult to move to another. When people want children, I think they probably picture their child uh, being a person without special needs, you know, without any disabilities. And I imagine when you were pregnant with Jack, you didn't either. Yeah. One hundred percent. I wrote a little bit a while ago about, you know, my husband and I are Catholic. We were married in a Catholic church. And before you get married, they have you do something called pre-cana where they ask you how you'll handle the holidays and income and budgeting. And I said, no one ever asked us, what would it be like to have a special needs child? I don't think it would have meant we wouldn't have gotten married, but perhaps it would have lodged something in my subconscious that this is possible. Right. Like this is a possible thing. So no, we were wholly unprepared for it. I will say Joe and I are very, my husband Joe and I are very naive people to the point of ridiculousness. And when Jack was first diagnosed, we thought, well, he'll just outgrow this. This is not forever. And I think naivete plays a really good role in life sometimes. (laughs) You've written that you've wondered why me in terms of being a forever parent. Have you gotten any closer to finding the answer to that question? I often think, why me? Because I'm just so ill-equipped for it. It's <laughs> Do I? No, I'm no closer. I mean, I try not to reach out and touch that flame too often. 
Um, I just, you know, put one foot in front of the other and hope for the best. But I do think, you know, out of the sea of people I, or who are in my universe, there are people much better suited to this job than me. Some people believe everything happens for a reason. And some people believe that things happen. And then you make the reason. Where do you land when it comes to having Jack with his special needs? I like to call them uh, tender mercies. You know, I don't know the reasoning or the fate of the world, but I knew, do know that they're um, often result in some tender mercies. You know, for example, I do have a special needs kiddo. It has blossomed to me into a much richer um, person than I think I ever would have been, multidimensional. It helped me just, you know, explore some creativity in terms of writing and becoming a storyteller and really living our life out loud. And I can't imagine my world without that dimension of myself. You'd mentioned that Jack was going through a tough time recently and you wrote a poem about it. It's called Love Him Through It. I'd love to hear you read it. Yes. Just a little background that we did have a tough team meeting last week and Normally, my inclination would be to call Jack and say, what are you doing? Why, you know, what is this behavior? What is that? And in a moment, I said, I'm going to love him through this. And so that's where this essay came from. What if all we had to do was love our children, love them through their mistakes, their poor judgment, their outbursts, their vulnerabilities, their moods, their highs and lows? My son Jack is diagnosed with autism. He is 18. For 18 years, doctors and therapists have told me what to do. Use social stories, try medication, redirect his obsessions. No one ever told me to simply love him. Love the way his hair smells after a bath. Love the way his chubby fingers grip a pencil. Love how earnestly and carefully he stacks his pillows at bedtime. Love him through it. Love him through this diagnosis that will follow him forever, like ants at a picnic. Love him when anxiety clutches his spirit and smile. Love him through the veneer of shame and embarrassment. What if we loved our kids through spilled milk, bad report cards, middle school? I don't mean butterflies, rainbows, cliche kind of love. I mean the gritty, raw, tender kind. The kind that requires us to listen, hear, try, and hurt. What if we made our home the safest of spaces? What if during puberty, we brought special treats at the grocery store and made beds smooth with blankets and lit candles during dinner? It could work. It could help our budding teens exhale. It could smooth the jagged edges of their hormones and their acne and their furiously changing bodies. Inside, they are wilting flowers upon a fragile vine. Inside, they need us even as they stubbornly push us away. This boy Jack has lived under a magnifying glass for his entire life. For as long as I can remember, his very existence has been quantified in terms of how many hours he slept, how he sat in his chair, how often he made eye contact. What if we measured it by smiles? Jack has autism. He also has severe anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. You can't discipline any of this out of him. I know because I tried. I tried telling him to stop being afraid of the windshield factor. It didn't work. I tried taking his beloved nightly Scooby-Doo episodes away when he couldn't sit for circle time at school. It didn't work. 
You cannot discipline a child at four o'clock for something he did before lunch. And anyone who suggests it is wrong. We need to love them through it. Jack is in a college program now. He lives in a supported residential space. He's having a hard time transitioning back to second semester. He has intrusive thoughts. He's behaving impulsively. He's verbally looping. He's making other students uncomfortable. All we have worked for, all we have hoped for and tried for and reached for is at risk. I am so frustrated, so worried, so aggravated, so tired, so lost. I could jump up and down and scream. I wanna believe he understands. I wanna believe he knows the relationship between behavior and outcome. The familiar narrative of if I do A, then B will happen. But I don't know if he does. I have to love him through it. This may be my hardest work yet. When my heart leans towards admonishing, I'll remind him he is enough. When my thoughts veer towards frustration, I'll choose a gentle voice. Inside and out, I will root for him. After all, I've never once heard a mother say she looked back on her life and wished she'd yelled more. I never once heard anyone say they were glad they traded Scooby-Doo for a seat in a circle. Today, I will love him through this. Because looking back, I'm scared there were moments when I forgot. When I saw the diagnosis before the boy. When I reached for the towel before smelling his bath time scent. When I told him to stop, stop worrying and pacing. Today, I'll set the magnifying glass aside. Who knows? Maybe I'll find the light no one else can find. He is enough. We are enough. I can't help but wonder. There's a lot of Jack in that poem, and there's a lot of you in that poem. And something I've been learning a lot lately, I've had a tough two years. And I've been learning about what it really means to love yourself. It's hard to do, but when you make it a practice to love yourself, and I don't mean like excuse yourself or find a reason as to why, but truly love the you that you wish was better. It seems to change everything. And so I wonder how much of loving Jack through it is also loving you through it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's new information even for me. It's, it's days old, like in its infancy. It's an infant love. And it's very lightning. Lightning in terms of it's lighting. I feel lighter with it. I feel... I'm doing the work I'm supposed to be doing in the way that feels right to me. When you think about the rest of Jack's life, knowing that this condition is always going to be a part of who he is, what do you hope for him when you picture his absolute best life? Mm, I love that question. I hope we can find a way to release anxiety's grip upon him so he may live a life of ease. I, I know he'll find a life of purpose and delight. I'm, I'm very committed to, to seeing that through. You know, you always say you just hope that they're happy. And Jack is a person who doesn't require a lot to be happy. He likes a good meal at the end of the day. He likes a good movie on a Saturday night. He has very simple 
pleasures. And I just hope in life he can continue um, finding those for himself. What do you hope for yourself? I hope to bear witness to it. I hope to, uh, when it comes to Jack, be able to move him to a point where we can live in that discovery phase of mother and son instead of autism manager and diagnosed child. And I believe that's possible. I really do. Well, Carrie, Carrie Yellow, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. When we get back, words of wisdom from a forever parent whose son needs 24-7 care. You don't even know what kind of power you have until you have a child with disabilities. You will climb mountains if you have to. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Being a forever parent means that your child will always need your support and can never be fully independent. Later, you'll meet Marissa, a 24-year-old woman who has Down syndrome, and her parents. Currently, Marissa's health is strong, and they need very little help outside of their loving family and community. But Adriana Piltz of New York needs all the help she can get. Her son, Nikki was born with tuberous sclerosis. He has internal and external tumors, which caused 50 to 100 seizures a day. Two brain surgeries helped alleviate the symptoms, but... At 24 years old, he's nonverbal, he doesn't walk long distances, he doesn't feed himself, and he needs 24-7 care. She wrote an article in 2018 about what it's been like for her. We'll have a link to it on our website. To help Nikki, Adriana quit her Wall Street job and started a nonprofit, Nikki's Gardens of Hope, which would be a permanent home for Nikki and other people like him who need more focused, consistent care. But that facility hasn't been built yet, so I asked her about the challenges of getting him the help he needs now. When you look at it, the parents of kids with disabilities, once they reach 21, they're on a cliff. His services got cut. I spent nine months daily on the phone with agencies to get him some kind of home attendant or somebody. The problem with the agency is a home attendant. One, a lot of them don't really want to be there, to be honest. They're just there because it's a freaking paycheck. Two, they cannot provide, they cannot give him medication. He needs to go to bathroom and using glycerin. They cannot do that either. So somebody has to be always home. 
And so what, what, what do you do as the parent? You have to make a choice. And I got him set up in New York City. I cannot move him to Massachusetts because then he would lose everything. What's the place in New York City like? Well, he lives uh, in my old apartment with his dad. And, you know, it, it's a small one-bedroom apartment. And there's another challenge. We cannot l- really live anywhere else besides going somewhere that it's woods, that people don't hear him screaming and yelling because this is the way he, impre- you know, expressed himself. When he's in, in, in pain, he screams and he hit himself and he bite himself and if he is hungry, you know, it took it three years for, for me to teach him to come to kitchen. So it takes takes a, a lot of um, changes and, and trying to figure out what, what's going on with him in order for him to come down. Then he's getting seizures now, too. So it's really difficult to go anywhere with him because you don't know what's going to happen, right? If he's going to have a seizures on the street, he, he can hurt himself. And he's a big boy. And to try to lift him, it's like lifting a bag of potatoes that he doesn't really want it to or, or whatnot. So it's difficult to go anywhere, one, two. It's, he's, he's big enough and I'm getting older and his daddy's getting older. So trying to get him something, it's next to impossible. Currently, I'm fighting to get him extended hours that his dad can get pay for him to take care of him. He needs care 24-7. Health insurance approved or New York City OPWDD approved for 29 hours a week. What can you do in 29 hours when he has a seizures? It takes four hours literally for us to figure out and make sure that he's not, you know, hurt and that he's okay. He's Then you have to cook for him. You have to feed him. You have to put him in a toilet. For them to assume that it's 29 hours, his dad cannot go to work because there's nobody to taking care of him. So what's going to happen to kids like Nikki? And there are different levels, right? There, there are, Some of them are more functioning. Some of them can work. But I don't think our society is ready for it. I don't, I don't think they are embracing it. What would an ideal world look like for Nikki and people like him, too? Honestly, parents like me, and, and nobody wants to ever think about it, but I'm not going to lie. I do think about it, that it's sometimes better if he dies before I go. Because if I die now, he belonged to state. What? What if? If I imagine what state's gonna do with him, I, I cannot even comprehend. There's no housing for them. So, an ideal world, what we actually working on, I'm fighting for, it's having inclusive community of mixed affordable housing, which people with disabilities are eligible for, and then market rate apartments and then condominiums for parents. Right, that I can live in the same place, but he needs to learn how to be independent because I'm not going to be around all the time. And having care 24-7 within the community. But it's just Nikki, right? There's a lot of kids who can work. So having them working in the bakery that it's in the, within the community, having them working in the gardens. But then the problem is, if they're going to work and make more money than $2,000 a month, they're going to lose all the benefits. So ideally, they'd be able to have their own safe place to live and for those who can work to have access to be able to work, to have living spaces for their care partners like you to be near and to help and to have some sort of economic system that is fair, Yes. given the condition. Exactly. 
And I think every parent wants that. I, when he was born, I literally promised him that I will do anything I can to make his life better. And one way to do that is create something that does not exist. And I will fight for it. And I've been doing it for four years. You know, I went broke because everything I had, I'm putting into that. But it makes me happy to talk to parents and, and give them the vision because they deserve to have a better life. Parents deserve to go and have a cup of coffee without worrying that they're going to be called police or that some Karen is going to say something stupid. Has that happened before? Oh, yes. Tell me about it. The place where we live, there was a lady living right next door. And Nikki was banging his head and he had a bad day. She knocked on my door and she said, can you leave your retarded son quiet? So I look at her with a smile and I said, can you come a little bit more closer? She walked in and I said, I grabbed her and I said, listen to me. If I'm going to one more time hear you calling my son retarded. I said, the only person retarded in this room is you right now. And she goes, I'm a writer. I said, honey, you're in the wrong spot then. You're living in New York City. That it's loud. You want to be a writer going to freaking woods. Yeah, and maybe pick some different words, writer. Exactly. You're a writer and you're talking, calling my son retard. I said, how dare you? And we had we had a police coming at three o'clock in the morning because somebody was calling police because they were thinking that Nikki is being abused while he was having, you know, stomach cake and it was sitting in the toilet. So the police would come, knock on the doors. You know, they, they came so often, they already knew it's like Nikki eats as a gift. That's why we stay in a place that we stay, because I'm afraid to go somewhere else. I mean, we had a police more than once in the house because he was screaming, he was yelling and of, you know, people thought it was abuse. And then police guys, you know, they walked in and they said, so like, you know, everything OK? I said, well, Nikki has a bad day, bad night again. And then they look at me and say, are you OK? I said, no, I'm not. I said, it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm dealing with you here while my son is in a pain. Right. So you do have Karens. You do have a people who are rude, who, who have no empathy whatsoever. And I'm OK with that because I can show them the middle finger. But at, at the same time, you know, I go and I cry on a pillow because I don't want anybody else to see me crying. Because they deserve better. It's not their fault. Right. It's not Nikki's fault. It's not anybody else's fault who is in a situation. I really want to talk about some of this big picture stuff. You've had you've had your whole life uh, with Nikki to think about the meaning of all this from, you know, your own personal meaning to it. You're changing maybe spiritual meanings. There was a video that you posted, uh, an interview with your two twins, <laughs> Alex and Max. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, there's a part of the conversation where you ask Alex, what would you wish for Nikki? Um, I wish he can talk. And why would you wish that? Well, because I want, some, I want him to stop screaming. Okay, but it's not his fault, and we know that. And it's God's fault. It's not God's fault. It's Nikki is how it is, right? Yeah. Why do you think Nikki is like that? It's not his fault. It is God's fault. No. Because God made people. When you ponder why Nikki is this way and that your life is this way, why do you think Nikki is the way he is? Before Nikki came, 
I was the most unpatient person in the world. It teach me the patience, teach me to not judge people before I know them or I don't walk in their shoes. But I said, more importantly, he showed me the way to help people like Nikki and the parents. Because we talk about people with disabilities, but we don't really talk about the emotional um, drain on, on families, emotional and financial and physical, to be honest, right? So help them. And the way for me to do that, it's talk about Nikki. You know, before I published the article, not so many people knew I have Nikki because I didn't brought it to the to the to the job, right? I worked, I worked 20 hours a day, I you know did what I had to do. They knew I have Nikki with special needs, but they didn't know in what extent. But I think at that point, as soon as I pressed the button on publish. A lot of people call me and crying and say, well, we never knew. And I said, and I didn't want you to. But I think if I don't talk about it, nothing's going to change. It takes angry mom, as I was told. It takes angry mom to do something or angry dad, right? And you see a lot of businesses popping out that employ people with disabilities because dead mom or dad had to do something for their child. Right. So I want to take that and create sustainable, inclusive living for adults with disabilities because there's really not much for them there. I don't want to be luxury and charge them thousands of dollars a month. I had to figure out how to make it work for the lower people who suffer already enough. That show me way to be more empathetic, to have a patience. And to stop judging people, even Karens, because I don't know what they're going through. But it doesn't mean I'm not going to go and tell them to of themselves um, or I'm not going to stood up for. But I believe that everybody, including adults with disabilities, should have the chance to have a dignified life and be the best they can be with little help. Yeah, especially considering we are all one accident or crash or moment away from being disabled ourselves. The disabled population is the largest minority in the world and frankly, the least represented in media, television, politics, anything. And it's right there in front of us, the possibility of us. And we shouldn't have to be a part of that community in order to care. And that that's the saddest part. And there's so much things that we can do as a community. You know, but let's talk about money because everybody talks about freaking money all the time you provide jobs and you provide a good living for people with disabilities you're gonna get taxes and you're gonna create an economic development and on the top of everything is justice they deserve to have good life and parents deserve to go on vacation or get drunk or sleep for 24 hours because they didn't sleep for weeks they can go and and, and spend time with with their friends or, or with the same group of people that they're not gonna be judged. We need to stop judging people and ask them actually if they're okay and meaning if, they, if you're okay. Because you know, mom who's been working three jobs just to make a living and she goes home and she's taking care of you know son or daughter who is disabled and she still goes in the morning with a smile on her face while she was crying at night on a pillow because she doesn't know how she's gonna do it next day. You know, ask them how they're doing and mean it. Ask them for coffee. 
and just let him vent. Sometimes venting is actually working. Don't judge. It's a full-time freaking job to get any services for your child. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. I wonder, I think the hard question is probably the one that you've thought about a lot or maybe you avoid thinking about, but if you may allow me to ask, when you do think about the possibility of Nikki's death um, before you, I imagine that you would have some mixed emotions about that. I'd like to hear what what goes through your heart when you think of it. To be honest, there's two emotions. You feel relief. You know that he's in a better place. But you also feel sadness that you couldn't help more, at least for me, that I couldn't do more, that I couldn't, you know, make him better. So feeling sad and relieved at the same time, it's just weird feeling. And it's not relief because I don't have to take care of anybody. It's the relief of I don't have to worry what happens to him when I die. I can create his legacy. I can work on reforming things, or or, or, or which I'm and I'm doing, and I will do until the day I die. But him being in the better place, and and, and I, I don't think it's it's a horrible thing to think about. But what is out there right now and options? That is the only relief that I might have if he would die before I would die. Every parent wants to have a child with a happy life or, or the best they can be. And kids with disabilities, and, and especially somebody like Nikki who cannot even fight for himself, that what is there for them out there right now? So that's, that's my feeling about. Oh my God, I'm crying all morning. Sorry. No, it's okay. I just get angry and I get, <laughs> it's, um, yeah. What advice do you have or words of wisdom or encouragement for somebody who is in a situation like yours? What do you wish you could have heard? Don't feel like you are alone because you're not. And it's okay to cry and it's okay to be angry. You can do it. You don't even know what kind of power you have, to be honest. Until you have a child with disabilities, you will climb mountains if you have to. And talk to people. Find a group like Nikki has tuberosclerosis. So I found a group and we talk and we vent and we exchange, you know, what medications are good, what it's not working, who doctor, just talk. And there's going to be days that you're going to feel you cannot do it. Put a music on, take a walk, and then come back and you're going to do it again. You know, and ask for help. There's no shame of asking for help because you have to be mentally in a good position to help your son or daughter. And I was told so many times, it's like an airplane. You got to put the mask on you first. 
and then you go and help everybody else. Just don't feel that you're alone. And you feel that if you feel that you at a last strength, just call, talk to somebody. And you know what? And it's okay to question your doctors. And it's okay to give your opinion to a doctor. And it's okay to go and find a different doctor. Don't be worried, don't be shape. It's your child. But first, take care of yourself too. Don't forget about yourself. Well, Adriana Pilts, thank you so much for talking with me. Anytime. Thank you so much, guys, for everything you do and, and bringing the light to actually the really, really important subject. Thank you. We'll have a link to Adriana's nonprofit, Nikki's Gardens of Hope, at our website, ctpublic.org audacious. After the break, what parents of someone with Down syndrome would like you to know about how to treat their daughter. Make her at least feel included. I mean, she will never have the same as you, but but include her. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Kids never truly stop needing their parents, but. At some point, most kids are able to move out of the house and become fully independent. And the hands-on job of parenting falls away. But that's not true in every case. Marissa is 24 and has Down syndrome. She's very independent and smart, but despite that, Kathy Carmode Lim and her husband Mars will be her caregivers for the rest of their lives. All three of them joined me recently from their home in Birmingham, Alabama. And I asked Kathy to talk about that transition between when Marissa was a little kid who got all sorts of smiles from people and when she became a teenager and people weren't quite so kind anymore. When she comes home from something and says, nobody sat with me, I sat by myself, or nobody talked to me, my heart breaks just a little bit every time. And I think, why... Why is it so hard for for other young people not to notice, not to know what to do? I mean, I know logically and I think about it, I know that it's like, it's challenging because when I was growing up and I knew people with, you know, with disabilities, like at school and they were always in, you know, in office, in totally opposite parts of the school. They were in, I might see some in the hallway or something, but I would smile, but it is. It's hard to know. And you feel kind of people, you just generally feel kind of intimidated because you're like, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure what to do. But then as the parent, then on the other side of it, then you're like, it shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) You know, like, for example, uh, you know, going to prom, you know, everyone's, oh, we're going to go to prom and going to go to prom. And but, you know, Marissa wasn't going to drive. She doesn't drive. Um, So. We, we, you know, we have to take her places. So right now, Marissa, three times out of the week, she's working at a, 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 a service rescue? place called Grace Klein. And mm-hmm. they're like a food rescue place. And boy, it would be easy if she could just drive over there. And then, you know, she, it was just a matter of fact that we just leave her the car for a couple hours. But no, we have to drive her there, come back home. 20 minute drive. And then when she's finished, we have to go back out there and then come back home. This will be part of your life. It's once the other kids are out of adolescence, this is still. Yeah, always going to be taxing. 
rather than every other time yeah it's like with the 16 year almost 16 year old like well she's gonna be driving although not really excited about that she's the last one to be yeah. driving but <laughs> you go through the but thing in, really you know, three or four oh, years drive and then you take care of themselves and then yeah but it, with this it's like no we're just gonna be driving her everywhere and and there's certain things that she has like at, sometimes um like with church they have like a little a congregation, which is very small, just for the young single adults in the area. And so they have activities all the time. Oh and she'll say, oh, they're doing this tonight. Oh, they're doing this on Saturday. And I'm like, I, I can't take you to that, too. I just we just did this, this and this. And I can't do that, too. I just can't. And, um, you know, your younger sister has something or we've just been driving around all day and I've got things I have to do, whatever it is. So, I'm like, I just can't. And I feel bad. So it's just harder for the spontaneity of things. I mean, you know, that, that's that's where we enjoy, you know, life is the spontaneity and things have to be kind of planned. So hopefully all of your lives are very long. Um, but of course, you've given thought to, you know, what happens if when the two of you die and Marissa's got her siblings and anyone else in her support system. What what do you think of either logistically or emotionally or anything when you think about your departure? Well, after my father died 13 years ago, we saw, you know, it's like, we need to set up like a trust and will and all those things and really do it right. And so visit a lawyer and did all those things. And he, at least, you know, of course, it's like, oh, well, what, you know, here's what you'd probably want to do with Marissa. And, you know, so we set that all up. And I do feel pretty confident that she'd most likely live with one of her siblings, with one of her sisters. If she has a list of things to do, she does it. And if she sees the need, she takes care of it. She's very good in her routine. Yeah. So mm -hmm. she, I don't, I just really don't feel like she'd be a burden on anybody. And of course, that I say that now, I don't know what will happen in, say, 20 to 30 years. And lifespan, you have an expectation of what, you know, somebody with Down syndrome, an average lifespan. And that's not as long. But at the same time, things keep you know, getting pushed back, you know, and getting better. But we've been really very blessed all these years. She just has not had so many health problems that she could have had. She didn't have heart issue at all, which is a really high percentage of, of like babies, even just when they're first born, having heart issues. She never That's even true. had ear, ear infections, so many things. She's just super, super healthy. And so, but at the same time, it's like, there's things to watch out for and things that are very, you know, very probable later on. Um, and I think even, you know, it's like dementia. What are some of the tensions that you're feeling as Marissa's parents and in your marriage? Marissa reads really well, right? Mm -hmm. She reads very well, but I think I think we're getting close to the to the highest potential the ceiling. The ceiling. The ceiling. <laughs> and so I think for me that that just kind of saddens me a little bit because you know all these years we're 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 we're, we're gripping onto hope that oh yeah she's improving she's improving she can't drive but you know she, she can now make mm -hmm. eggs without supervision you know she can she can mm -hmm. turn on a burner now without supervision uh, you know she can take care of the cats without us telling her to do it. But I, I guess it's my form of grieving, I guess, and for me, for me. There have been moments where I'm like, oh, this is really hard or something, but it hasn't been 
this experience per se. <laughs> There's other things we are going through with a teenager, <laughs> but so that has been, I would say, a blessing and then maybe an unusual thing because again, because I've I've heard that and read that so much that you just marriages really collapse or or really struggle under that strain of of that extra of that what you could say a burden. Um, also the fact that, Marissa right? doesn't she, she she's pretty low maintenance. She doesn't need anything. She doesn't she's, ask she's, it, yeah. she's very content with the small gifts that everyone else gives her. And once again, she doesn't need a lot of things for her health medically and, and all that kind of stuff. So there hasn't been a huge financial burden. I think that for a lot of people that might be that might be the big a big stressor in their marriages. And we'll counter blessings. Don't worry. We'll, we'll counter blessings about them. But that has not been an issue for us. As Marissa's parents, you see things from a different perspective than her siblings or her friends. So coming from that view, what is some advice you have for people as they interact with Marissa? When when Marissa was struggling, especially as a teenager and uh, even with her sisters, you know, her sisters are going on dates back and forth. Guys are interested in them and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, they can go to a dance and guys are fawning over my daughters. And for Marissa, you know, did you go to dance? Yeah. Who'd you dance with? Oh, my friends. You know, it's usually girlfriends. So, um, friends. you know, they don't get the guy from across the room who walks over and wants to to dance with them. There's been a couple of guys who've done that. And I think they do that as a, as a gesture of, of being nice. And I want to tell the young people, listen, guys you're you're going to have a normal life you know you're going to have your heartbreaks you're going to have your falling in love marissa's life is not going to be as that so spend some time now to give her to make her at least feel included i mean she will never have the same as you but but include her include her in in, in that let her tag along uh, as much as much as you can of course as much as you can uh, once again marissa is pretty high level and she's able to do, I mean, she'll go shopping and she won't be able to, she doesn't understand the concept of money. <laughs> so Many people don't. Yeah. <laughs> but the good thing is that she doesn't have a lot of needs. So needs. So it's not like she's going to break the bank or anything like that. No. Yeah. Yeah. She force her. Oh, she couldn't spend a little bit more money on, on, on presents and Christmas presents or, or someone's birthday. I, I don't want people to treat her as a pet. Or as, a, as a mascot. Mascot. As a mascot. You know, I want someone to be able to talk to her as much as they can relate to her. There's one thing to say, hey, there you are. And it's another thing to say, hey, there you are. How are you? Tell me about what you did today, like engaging with her instead of just pointing her out. I think as you become more aware, and some of us, we may be forced to be more aware sooner. You know, her her sisters, her sisters are pretty protective of her. And I don't think your typical teenager will, will, will advance with that unless they have some kind of experience like that, they're not going to do it on their own. What do you think you've learned that you only could have learned from Marissa and being her parents? I think with anything with her, we have the youngest has ADHD and that's been a huge challenge. (laughs) That's been a lot harder, but these things that, you know, that you experience in life, the people that you're up against all the different things that would be challenges that are outside the norm, which honestly, most everything is outside the norm, but all of those things um, give you an experience that you allows you to understand better how to 
empathize with other people, how to how to give to them, how to support them, how to talk to them. So that experience again is sometimes is just the only way to learn how to do something. For for me, reflecting back, I mean, you know, I I could have been nicer to people who had disabilities growing up. I wasn't terrible. I, I remember I can be nice. I can say the nice things. You know, I can say, hey, how are you doing? You okay? Do you need anything? But what what would have been missing was the emotional component of that. I mean, Marissa, she's with us. I mean, we have to emotionally invest with our own children. That gives a lot more depth to when you deal with people who have disabilities. You can be trained to say the nice things. You can do that for image, but for for you as a person, you know, what what are you, you know, your, your integrity uh, when it's one-on-one and no one sees what you're doing. How do you interact with, with people with disabilities? So that's probably the biggest component of, of raising a child, raising an individual who has Downs or who has any disability. You as a parent or as a family member, you can say, yeah, that, that must be really hard. I, I can imagine. Say what's real and what's true and what's kind and what's, what's a connecting, loving thing to say. <laughs> and let it come naturally. It should, we and want it, it to come, come naturally. naturally instead of so you practice on making that come naturally. All right, Marissa, this is the most important question, and you get it. Uh-oh. What grade do you give your parents in raising you? Mm. For mom, from zero to 10, how good a mom is she? 100? I'm going to give her 100. Okay, so mom gets 100. How about that? And that it is 400. If that means anything to you, then. It means a lot to me. And I'm not surprised after talking with you all. So I want to say thank you so much, Kathy, Mars, and Marissa. Thank you so much for talking with me. No, we've enjoyed it. Thank you. Yay. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can hear all our episodes at ctpublic.org slash audacious, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your thoughts on this episode on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>